The Blue Cross, too. They tumbled down the steps into the road without realizing why they had been dislodged. Then they looked round for enlightenment, for they found Valentin triumphantly pointing his finger towards a window on the left side of the road. It was a large window forming part of a long façade of gilt and palatial public house. It was the part reserved for respectable dining and labeled restaurant. This window, like all the rest along the frontage of the hotel, was of frosted and figured glass, but in the middle of it was a big black smash, like a star on the ice. "'Our cue at last!' cried Volantin, waving his stick. "'The place with the broken window!' "'What window? What cue?' asked his principal assistant. "'Why, what proof is there that this has anything to do with them?' Valentin almost broke his bamboo stick with rage. "'Proof!' cried Valentin. "'Good heavens! The man is looking for proof! Why, of course the chances are twenty to one that it has nothing to do with them. But what else can we do? Don't you see we must either follow one wild possibility, or else go home to bed?' He banged his way into the restaurant followed by his companions, and they were soon seated at a late luncheon at a table and looking at the star of smashed glass from the inside. Not that it was very informative to them, even then. "'Got your window broken, I see,' said Valentin to the waiter as he paid his bill. "'Yes, sir,' answered the attendant, bending busily over the change, to which Valentin silently added an enormous tip. The waiter straightened himself with mild but unmistakable animation. "'Ah, oh, yes, sir,' he said. "'Very odd, that, sir.' "'Indeed. Tell us about it,' said the detective with careless curiosity. "'Well, two gents in black came in,' said the waiter. Two of those foreign parsons that are around here now. They had a cheap and quiet little lunch, and one of them paid for it and went out.' and the other was just going out to join him when I looked at my change again, and found he'd paid me more than three times too much. Here, I says, to the chap, who was nearly out the door, you've paid me too much. Oh, he says, very cool, have we? Yes, I says, and picks up the bill to show him. Well, that was a knockout. What do you mean? asked Valentin. Well, I'd have sworn on seven Bibles that I put four shillings on the bill, but now I see I put fourteen shillings as plain as paint. Well, cried Valentin, moving slowly but with burning eyes, and then the parson at the door, he says, all serene, sorry to confuse your accounts, but it'll pay for the window. What window, I says. The one I'm going to break, he says, and smash that blessed pane with his umbrella. All the inquirers made an exclamation, and the inspector said under his breath, Are we after escaped lunatics? The waiter went on with some relish for the ridiculous story. I was so knocked silly for a second, I couldn't do anything. The man marched out of the place and joined his friend just round the corner. Then they went so quick up Bullock Street that I couldn't catch him, though I ran round the bars to do it. Bullock Street, said the detective, and shot up the thoroughfare as quickly as the strange couple he pursued. 
Their journey now took them through bare brick ways like tunnels, streets with few lights, even with few windows, streets that seemed built out of the blank backs of everything and everywhere. Dusk was deepening, and it was not easy even for the London policemen to guess in what exact direction they were treading. The inspector, however, was pretty certain that they would eventually strike some part of Hampstead Heath. Abruptly, one building and gaslit window broke, and blue twilight like a bull's eye lantern, and Valentin stopped an instant before a little garish sweet shop. After an intense hesitation, he went in. He stood amid the gaudy colors of the confectionery with entire gravity and bought thirteen chocolate cigars with a certain care. He was clearly preparing an opening, but he did not need one. An angular elderly young woman in the shop had regarded his elegant appearance with a merely automatic inquiry. But when she saw the door behind him blocked with the blue uniform of the inspector, her eyes seemed to wake up. Oh, she said, if you've come about that parcel, I've sent it off already. Parcel, repeated Valentin, and it was his turn to look inquiring. I mean the parcel the gentleman left, the clergyman gentleman. For goodness sake, said Valentin, leaning forward with his first real confession of eagerness. For heaven's sake, tell us what happened exactly. Well, said the woman, a little doubtfully. The clergyman came in about half an hour ago, and bought some peppermints, and talked a bit, and then went off towards the heath. But a second after, one of them ran back into the shop and says, Have I left a parcel? Well, I looked everywhere, and I couldn't see one. So he says, Never mind, but if it should turn up, please post it to this address. And he left me the address and a shilling for my trouble. And sure enough, though I thought I'd looked everywhere, I found he'd left a brown paper parcel, so I posted it to that place, he said. I can't remember the address now. It was somewhere in Westminster. But as the thing seemed so important, I thought perhaps the police had come about it. So they have, said Valentin shortly. Is Hampstead Heath near here? Straight on for fifteen minutes, said the woman, and you'll come right out on the open. Valentin sprang out of the shop and began to run. The other detectives followed him at a reluctant trot. The street they treaded was so narrow and shut in by shadows that when they came out unexpectedly into the void, common, and vast sky, they were startled to find the evening still so light and clear. A perfect dome of peacock green sank into gold amid the blackening trees and the dark violet distance. The glowing green tint was just deep enough to pick out in points of crystal one or two stars. All that was left of the daylight lay in a golden glitter across the edge of Hampstead and that popular hollow which is called the Vale of Heath. The holiday-makers who roamed this region had not wholly dispersed. A few couples sat shapelessly on benches, and here and there a distant girl still shrieked in one of the swings. The glory of heaven deepened and darkened around the sublime vulgarity of man, and standing on the slope and looking across the valley, Valentin beheld the thing which he sought. 
Among the black and breaking groups in the distance was one especially black, which did not break, a group of two figures clerically clad. Though they seemed as small as insects, Valentin could see that one of them was much smaller than the other. Though the other had a student stoop and an inconspicuous manner, he could see that the man was well over six feet tall. He shut his teeth and went forward, whirling his stick impatiently. By the time he had substantially diminished the distance and magnified the two black figures as in a vast microscope, he had perceived something else, something which startled him, and yet which he had somehow expected. Whoever was the tall priest, there could be no doubt about the identity of the short one. It was his friend of Harwich Train, the stumpy little curé of Essex, whom he had warned about his brown paper parcels. Now so far as this went, everything fitted in finally and rationally enough. Valentin had learned by his inquiries that morning that a father brown from Essex was bringing up a silver cross with sapphires, a relic of considerable value, to show some of the foreign priests at the Congress. This undoubtedly was the silver with blue stones, and Father Brown undoubtedly was the little greenhorn in the train. Now there was nothing wonderful about the fact that Valentin had found out Flambeau had also found out. Flambeau found out everything. Also there was nothing wonderful in the fact that when Flambeau heard of a sapphire cross, he should try to steal it. That was the most natural thing in all of nature, and was certainly there was nothing wonderful about the fact that flambeau should have it all his own way with such a silly sheep of a man with the umbrella and the parcels he was the sort of man whom anybody could lead on a string to the north pole it was not surprising that an actor like flambeau dressed as another priest could lead him to hampstead heath so far the crime seemed clear enough and while the detective pitied the priest for his helplessness, he almost despised Flambeau for condescending to so gullible a victim. But when Valentin thought all that he had happened in between, of all that had led him to this triumph, he racked his brains for the smallest rhyme or reason in it. What had the stealing of a blue silver cross from a priest from Essex to do with chucking soup at wallpaper? What had it to do with calling nuts oranges, or with paying for a window first and breaking it afterwards? He had come to the end of his chase, yet somehow he had missed the middle of it. When he failed, which was seldom, he had usually grasped the clue, but nevertheless missed the criminal. Here he had grasped the criminal, but still he could not grasp the clue. The two figures that they had followed were crawling like black flies across the huge green contour of a hill. They were evidently sunk in conversation and perhaps did not notice where they were going, but they were certainly going to the wilder and more silent heights of the heath. As their pursuers gained on them, the latter had to use the undignified attitude of deer-stalkers, to crouch behind clumps of trees and even to crawl prostrate in deep grass. By these ungainly ingenuities, 
The hunter even came close enough to the quarry to hear the murmur of the discussion, but no word could be distinguished except the word reason, reoccurring frequently in a high and almost childish voice. Once over an abrupt dip of land and a dense triangle of thickets, the detective actually lost the two figures they were following. They did not find the trail again for an agonizing ten minutes, and then it led round the brow of a great dome of hill overlooking an amphitheater of rich and desolate sunset scenery. Under a tree, in this commanding yet neglected spot, was an old ramshackle wooden seat. On this seat sat the two priests still in serious speech together. The gorgeous green and gold still clung to the darkening horizon, but the dome above was torn slowly from peacock green to peacock blue, and the stars detached themselves more and more like solid jewels. Mutely motioning to his followers, Valentin contrived to creep up behind the big branching tree, and, standing there in deathly silence, heard the words of the strange priests for the first time. After he had listened for a minute and a half, he was gripped by a devilish doubt. Perhaps he had dragged the two English policemen to the wastes of nocturnal heath on an errand no saner than seeking figs on thistles, for the two priests were talking exactly like priests, piously with learning and leisure, about the most aerial enigmas of theology. The little Essex priest spoke the more simply, with his round face turned to the straightening stars, the other talked with his head bowed, as if he were not even worthy to look at them. But no more innocently clerical conversation could have been heard in any white Italian cloister or black Spanish cathedral. The first he had heard was the tale of one of Father Brown's sentences, which ended, What they really meant in the Middle Ages by the heavens being incorruptible. The taller priest nodded his bowed head and said, "'Ah, yes, these modern infidels appeal to their reason, but who can look at those millions of worlds and not feel that they may well be wonderful universes above us, where reason is utterly unreasonable?' "'No,' said the other priest, "'reason is always reasonable, even in the last limbo.' In the lost borderland of things, I know the people change the church with lowering reason, but it is just the other way. Alone on earth, the church makes reason really supreme. Alone on earth, the church affirms that God himself is bound by reason. The other priest raised his austere face to the spangled sky and said, Yet who knows if in that infinite universe... Only infinite physically, said the little priest, turning sharply in his seat, not infinite in the sense of escaping from the laws of truth. Valentin, behind his tree, was tearing his fingernails with silent fury. He seemed almost to hear the sniggers of the English detectives, whom he had brought so far on a fantastic guess, only to listen to the metaphysical gossip of two mild old parsons. In his impatience he lost the equally elaborate answer of the tall cleric, and when he listened again, it was again Father Brown who was speaking. 
Reason and justice grip the remotest and the loneliest star. Look at those stars. Don't they look as if they were single diamonds and sapphires? Well, you can imagine any mad botany or geology you please. Think of the forest of adamant with leaves of brilliance. Think of the moon. Is a blue moon a single elephant sapphire? But don't fancy that all the frantic astronomy would make the smallest difference to reason and justice of conduct. On plains of opal, under cliffs cut out of pearl, you would still find a notice board, Thou shalt not steal. Valentin was just in the act of rising from his rigid and crouching attitude, and creeping away as softly as might be, felled by the one great folly of his life. But something in the very silence of the tall priest made him stop until the latter spoke. When at last he did speak, he said simply, his head bowed and his hands on his knees, "'Well, I think the other worlds may perhaps rise higher than our reason. The mystery of heaven is unfathomable, and for one can only bow one's head.' Then with brow yet bent and without changing by the faintest shade his attitude or voice he added just hand over the sapphire cross of yours will you you're all alone here and i could pull you to pieces like a straw doll the utter unaltered voice and attitude added a strange violence to that shocking change of speech but the garter of the relic only seemed to turn his head by the smallest section of the compass he seemed still to have a somewhat foolish face turned to the stars. Perhaps he had not understood, or perhaps he had understood and sat rigid with terror. Yes, said the tall priest, in the same low voice and in the same still posture. Yes, I am Flambeau. Then after a pause he said, Come, will you give me that cross? No, said the other, and the monosyllable had an odd sound. Flambeau suddenly flung off all his pontifical pretension. The great robber leaned back in his seat and laughed low but long. No, he cried, you won't give it me, you proud prelate. You won't give it me, you little celibate simpleton. Shall I tell you why you won't give it me? Because I've got it already in my own breast pocket. The small man from Essex turned what seemed to be a dazed face in the dusk, and said, with the timid eagerness of the private secretary, "'Are are you sure?' Flambeau yelled with delight. "'Really? You're as good as a three-act farce!' he cried. "'Yes, you turn up. I'm quite sure. I had the sense to make a duplicate of the right parcel, and now, my friend, you've got the duplicate, and I've got the jewels.' "'An old dodge, Father Brown, a very old dodge.' "'Yes,' said Father Brown, and passed his hand through his hair, with the same strange vagueness of manner. "'Yes, I've heard of it before.' The colossus of crime leaned over to the little rustic priest with a sort of sudden interest. "'You have heard of it?' he asked. "'Where have you heard of it?' "'Well, I mustn't tell you his name, of course,' said the little man simply. He was a penitent, you know. He had lived prosperously for about twenty years entirely on duplicate brown paper parcels, and yes, you see, when I began to suspect you, I thought of this poor chap's way of doing it at once. 
"'Began to suspect me?' repeated the outlaw with increased intensity. "'Did you really have the gumption to suspect me "'just because I brought you up to this bare part of the heath?' "'Oh, no, no,' said Father Brown, with an air of apology. "'You see, I suspected you when we first met. "'It's that little bulge up the sleeve where you people have the spiked bracelet.' "'How in Tartarus!' cried Flambeau. "'Did you ever hear of the spiked bracelet?' "'Oh, one's a little flock, you know,' said Father Brown, arching his eyebrows rather blankly. "'When I was a curate at Hartlepool,' There were three of them with spiked bracelets. So, as I suspected you from the first, don't you see, I made sure that the cross should go safe somehow. I'm afraid I watched you, you know. So, at last, I saw you change the parcels. Then, don't you see, I changed them back again, and then left the right one behind. Left it behind? repeated Flambeau, and for the first time there was another note in his voice beside his triumph. "'Well, it was like this,' said the little priest, speaking in the same unaffected way. "'I went back to the sweet shop and asked if I'd left a parcel and gave them a particular address if it turned up. Well, I knew I hadn't, but when I went away again I did. So, instead of running after me with the valuable parcel— they have sent it flying uh, to a friend of mine in Westminster. Then, he added rather sadly, I learnt that too, from a poor fellow in Hartlepool. He used to do it with handbags he stole at the railway station, but he's in a monastery now. Oh, one gets to know, you know, he added, rubbing his head again, with the same sort of desperate apology. "'We can't help being priests. "'People come and tell us these things.' "'Flambeau tore a brown paper parcel out of his inner pocket "'and rent it in pieces. "'There was nothing but paper and sticks of lead inside. "'He sprang to his feet with a gigantic gesture and cried, "'I don't believe you. "'I don't believe a bumpkin like you could manage all that. "'I believe you've still got the stuff on you. "'And if you don't give it up, why, we're all alone.' "'and I'll take it by force.' "'No,' said Father Brown simply, and stood up also. "'You won't take it by force. First, because I really haven't still got it, "'and second, because we're not alone.' "'Flambeau stopped in his stride forward. "'Behind that tree,' said Father Brown, pointing, "'are two strong policemen and the greatest detective alive. "'How did they come here, do you ask? "'Why, I brought them, of course.' "'How did I do it? Why, I'll tell you, if you like. "'Lord bless you. We have to know twenty such things when we work among the criminal classes. "'Well, I wasn't sure you were a thief, and it would never do to make a scandal against one of our own clergy, "'so I just tested you to see if anything would make you show yourself. "'A man generally makes a small scene if he finds salt in his coffee. "'If he doesn't, he has some reason for keeping quiet.' I changed the salt and the sugar, and you kept quiet. A man generally objects if his bill is three times too big. If he pays it, he has some motive for not passing notice. I altered your bill, and you paid it. The world seemed waiting for Flambeau to leap like a tiger, but he was held back by a spell. He was stunned with the utmost curiosity. Well, 
went on Father Brown, with lumbering lucidity. As you wouldn't leave any tracks for the police, of course somebody had to. At every place we went to, I took care to do something that would get us talked about for the rest of the day. I didn't do much harm. A splash on the wall, spilt apples, a broken window. But I saved the cross, as the cross will always be saved. It's at Westminster by now. I rather wonder you didn't stop it with the donkey's whistle. With the what? asked Flambeau. I'm glad you've never heard of it, said the priest, making a face. It's a foul thing. I'm sure you're too good a man for a whistle. I couldn't have countered it even with the spots myself. I'm not strong enough in the legs. What on earth are you talking about? asked the other. Well, I did think you'd know the spots, said Father Brown, agreeably surprised. Oh, you can't have gone so very wrong yet. How in blazes do you know all these horrors? cried Flambeau. The shadow of a smile crossed the round, simple face of his clerical opponent. "'Oh, by being a celibate simpleton, I suppose,' he said. "'Has it never struck you that a man who does next to nothing but hear men's real sins "'is not likely to be wholly unaware of human evil? "'But as a matter of fact, another part of my trade, too, made me sure you weren't a priest.' "'What?' asked the thief, almost gaping. "'You attacked reason,' said Father Brown. "'It's a bad theology.' And even as he turned away to collect his property, and the three policemen came out from under the twilight trees, Flambeau was an artist and a sportsman. He stepped back, and swept Valentin a great bow. "'Do not bow to me, mon ami,' said Valentin, with silver clearness. "'Let us bow to our master.' And they both stood an instant uncovered, while the little Essex priest blinked about for his umbrella." The End of the Blue Cross Miss Retro Reads is brought to you by Anchor. Anchor is an app that helps you record your podcasts, edit it, insert music or sound effects, or even background music. There's so much more you can do with this app than I do. And they distribute it wherever you're listening to it right now. So thanks, Anchor.